Are your school days out of sight? When you took English, art, and math, what's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger or disgusting Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for sophomore lit. Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. And welcome back to another one of our Christmas specials, which means, once again, I'm joined by my lovely and brilliant wife, Marina McCoy. Hi, all. Nice to be here. Right. Um, and this time, we are finally getting around to doing A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens uh, from 1843, I believe. I... Uh, was hesitant to do this, but Marina encouraged me. Well, we had just seen the movie um, with uh, George Scott. Is that right? Yeah, George C. Scott. George C. Scott. Uh, when we were at visiting my mother in Florida at her behest, and so I thought it would be a good time to reread this great classic. Yeah. I think the movie does a pretty good job of staying fairly faithful to the text with a couple of very small exceptions. So. Yeah, that, that movie came out in 1984. And as I remember, it was in the States, it was uh, uh, broadcast as a presentation by IBM. And I actually remember seeing it. I remember seeing the little ads in between for IBM computers. Um, looking up the Wikipedia page, I learned that it was released uh, theatrically over in Britain. Mm. And it, it has a, a... George C. Scott, of course, is an American... But, uh, actor, but it has an interesting cast, including Susanna York as Mrs. Cratchit and uh, David Warner as Bob Cratchit. So if you're interested in old uh, British actors from the 80s, go go check that out. Sounds good. <laughs> so anyway, um, as I said, I was a little bit hesitant to do this over the years because, of course, it's so well covered. But uh, I'm glad we, we you, you convinced me, because every time I do read this, I find something new to fixate on. Uh, what was your experience of, of reading it this time? I enjoyed rereading it. It had probably been about 10 years since I read it last. I think the last time that I read it, we had read it aloud to our kids, who were small enough to put up with us doing things like that <laughs> at Christmas time. Um, I mean, I was really struck by thematic considerations this time, and how much Dickens um, really thinks about time in an interesting way. Um, yeah. Well, um, we're not going to go over the plot of this because I assume everyone has either seen a production of this or read this. But but there I... are spoilers about Scrooge. <laughs> right. There are some spoilers so in here. So if you don't know what happens... I would pause right now, go watch the movie, read the book, come back. Right. If you if you don't know what happened, I would pause right now, go back and relive your life, but pay attention this time to the many hundreds of times you've seen it in the adaptation of Christmas Carol. <laughs> um, but, but reading it through, um, you know, the first thing that strikes me uh, is the, from the opening, um, Dickens adopts this really funny narrative voice that's going to stop and comment on the action and is going to make some really bad dad jokes along the way. He may, the, the narrator makes a bunch of really silly puns, including at the very beginning talking about uh, why do we say as dead as a doornail when a coffin nail would be more dead. And 
I found myself being, you know, in, in the past where I found myself being ex exasperated by the voice, I, I found myself being charmed because I really did kind of picture uh, Dickens as kind of this silly uh, uncle character who's like, huh, huh, get it? <laughs> Cockadale, huh? Someone who says, what, the Dickens? <laughs> Um, and, and, and the, the narrator is, you know, we'll get back to this. The narrator of this is a first person narrator in a weird, you know, it's, it's, we think of it as a third person book, but the narrator refers to itself, themselves as I, and has lots of opinions and they're just going to share, share them with you. I have to say I was struck by about three or four key themes. Um, the themes were gratitude, community, and charity or mercy, however you want to put it. Um, as sort of the guiding principles that were driving the way the narrator approaches the subject material. Um, and then there was this theme, obviously, about time, which is it's interesting. One thing I noticed is that I think the book has a chiastic structure, meaning that, that there's a kind of central point where... Scrooge and Christmas present are engaged in looking at this joyous scene of um, people at Christmas time playing games, you know, in the parlor games or whatever. And everything else um, gets has a kind of a mirror image on either side of that central point. So, for example, the opening uh, scenes have Bob Cratchit wanting to light a fire and Scrooge saying no. And the very end of the whole thing has him telling him to put more coal in the fire there's um, these various accounts of death that are um, on either side of that chiastic structure. Um, so it's, it's interesting because everything that kind of is bad or negative on one side of Christmas present gets told again, but in a more positive spin on the second half of the book. Well, that's a good observation. It, it, this is, um, it, I, I was struck reading through by how short this was. You know, Dickens mm -hmm. has a reputation for being very long. Uh, I am currently reading another book by Dickens for this podcast, and I hope to be done with it sometime soon, but I had forgotten how long he is. Uh, but with a, a short um, a short piece like this, Dickens is able to really craft finally the uh, the plot line. It's, there's, there's not a lot that's, that's extraneous to, to this. Uh, story. On the other hand, those extraneous things are some of my favorite parts. <laughs> what are some of your favorite extraneous things? Well, there's a part that almost never gets uh, ad adapted, and it's obvious why, because it would be very hard to adapt, where in the, the Christmas present pa uh, passage, uh, the spirit of Christmas present takes uh, Scrooge to Cornwall, actually, and he takes him to a mine there and he talks about all the people at the mine having, uh, uh, even though they're engaged in horrible labor below the earth, having a kinder word for each other because it's Christmas. And then they go out over the sea from, you know, from Cornwall, that's out into the Atlantic Ocean heading, heading west. And uh, they visit a ship at sea, where they, which is in some distress there's some there's some uh indication that there's a storm going on but the uh the crew and the captain are happier and gentler with one another because it's christmas so there's this interesting point where 
Scrooge is looking at his younger self when Christmas past takes him to that time. He's a boy and he's been reading Robinson Crusoe and actually the figures from Robinson Crusoe, I think, appear in a vision that that doesn't happen in the movie. You just see like the boy reading the book in the George Scott uh, version. But he actually sees it, it comes alive for him and he says a couple of things. He says something like, poor boy. And poor Robinson Crusoe. And the poor boy is both Robinson Crusoe, but it's also Scrooge, who is a kind of a adrift Robinson Crusoe, where he's been like adrift himself as a child and mistreated, abandoned by his father, who really never comes around to, to caring for him again. And uh, at the moment that he notices that, he that the adult Scrooge that's on this journey says... I wish I had given the boys who was singing Christmas carols for me last night um, basically something, a kind of tip. So there's this interesting theme of gratitude by which, um, you know, he's on the one hand grateful to revisit the, his child self and to see Robinson Crusoe again, but he's also re recollecting how vulnerable he felt as a child before he got all tough and uh, the tenderness he felt, even though it was a kind of mixed experience, that l leads him to want to care for this little boy who was in Christmas carols and to reach out. And that's a common theme of gratitude, right? That's when we feel grateful that we tend to want to give to others. Um, and there are a couple places where the spirit talks about the people who are grateful, even just for like the silly games they're playing, the ghost of Christmas present, I think, says these people are silly, they're acting silly, playing their games, but they have gratitude. And so I think that's a big theme. I like your point about uh, Scrooge's tenderness towards his earlier self. And you mentioned earlier on that one of the themes you see in the book is community. And I'd like you to expound on that in a minute. Uh, after I finish what I'm about to say. But I, I think that it's a very good point because I think a lot of adaptations of A Christmas Carol really focus on this idea of Scrooge as a miser, that his main sin is be, is avarice, that, he, that all he wants to do is acquire things. And I don't think that actually is the um the journey that scrooge takes is one from being a, a miser to being um generous although he he does do that i think what the the journey is is of a person who has felt wounded by the world in a way like he's he he had a sad childhood he had a favorite sister die he did what you were supposed to do as a victorian which is you're supposed to amass your wealth before you get married. And so he spent so long doing that, that the woman he was uh, engaged to left him. And I think that there's a, in the scene where she, um, she leaves him, the woman says uh, a key line, which is you fear the world too much. Mm. And I think that that ultimately is Scrooge's actual sin is the, inability to engage with life, given that it can be disappointing, given that it can hurt you. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it's a very, it is a very tender thing. I think what she says, which sounds to me like the voice of, you know, 
the author kind of breaking through to say, here's the point of the book, is she says, you've displeased me with a golden idol. And so what uh, she seems to be saying is that for her, the fiancé, the relationship was the most important thing, but that the money has become a new idol for him. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of allusions to Moses in the book that I noticed, you know, Moses' staff, the golden idol that Aaron makes. So there, there's some biblical themes that are alluded to. But yeah, so I, I guess I do think about it as a real critique of capitalism because it certainly criticizes the conditions of miners and clerks. I, I was trying to look up what a counting house was and Wikipedia says that the counting house that Cratchit works in was commonly perceived as a dismal place to work. So it's kind of, we don't ever, I think you and I were talking about this when we were watching the movie, we don't really know what the job is that Scrooge has. He just... Uh, he like works, you know? <laughs> he, he works and he earns money and we don't know what it is that he does. He does business. He does business. But I guess that's sort of the point is that obviously whatever it is he's doing doesn't matter to him beyond the wage earning. And there's an interesting criticism of that in ancient Greek philosophy where, you know, Plato, I think implicitly has his character Socrates suggests that the point of any craft is to do it well. You know, doctors want to care for their patients. Pilots want to get their ships to safe harbor. That wage earning is a kind of incidental um, thing to, like, meaningful work. Although, mm-hmm. of course, we all need it. Money is also really important in the book, right? Because people need it to eat and to have good health care at the time. And Right. Um, well, yeah. there, there's also an interesting um, parallel with Dickens' Dickens' own life in that when Dickens was a child, his father... Uh, spent some time in debtor's prison and he was not a great provider for the family and Dickens came out of poverty and at the time he was writing A Christmas Carol he was actually being threatened to be cut off by his publisher because while Dickens uh, ended up uh, being one of the most popular uh, authors of the Victorian era and was able to actually make a living just going around doing things like reading A Christmas Carol aloud, uh, at, before this book, he was not doing well. And he, they were, there was a lot of uh, pressure being put on him by the publisher to come up with something that would sell. Uh, and so in a way, there's a, an implicit uh, anxiety here about the fact that Dickens himself was so engaged in chasing uh, money at this point, he was worried about what that might do to him and whether that might turn him into, um, like his father, someone who was mm. estranged from his family. That's interesting. I mean, I think you're right that community is an important theme. I mean, I think that some of the most moving scenes are really simple scenes, you know, that the fun of like playing party games, you know, today we play like you and I play categories or ransom notes, but they're playing blind man's buff and um, these word games. And all the games are playing take no money to play, right? You don't even need to buy <laughs> the, the game. It's all, it takes nothing. And they're playing songs, but the songs are noted to be simple songs that are like little ditties. They're not sophisticated, but there's that joy that we all get from just being with family and having fun and letting loose a little bit. And that's, um, that's, I think, a lot of the 
the community spirit there. So, um, and I think there's another moment where also when Scrooge has like had his conversion and he's walking through town, he just looks and he watches people in the windows and the business and trade of the day and the um, beautiful things around him and kids having fun that he has this kind of contemplative spirit by which he just enjoys being part of a community. Um, even before he gets to his nephew's house, even before he gives Cratchit a raise, mm-hmm. he just enjoys that he's living in a community of people. So that's definitely a big thing. You bring up the the games night, and that's another one of these kinds of... It's not completely extraneous because it deals with Scrooge's nephew and the kind of life that his nephew has, as you say, with, that does not require being rich and in some ways is, is very simple. But uh, this time reading it through, I had exactly the same thought that you did just now, which is these are a bunch of game nerds. This is like, uh, <laughs> you know, like people getting together, uh, playing, you know, Catan or something. Uh, 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 but, you know, they're, they're, uh, the other thing that struck me about it is that the games they play are seem to be um, designed to break down uh, social taboos. There's a lot like the the fact that they play blind men's buff gives the uh, one guy an opportunity to kind of chase after the the the, the girl he's he's been uh, yeah that that, for. that girl is really unhappy with it. But then there's this very indirect allusion to the fact that the next guy who plays blind. Like, is back behind the curtains with her or whatever. So <laughs> yeah. but she wasn't unhappy with that one. So, um, yeah. There's um, the other thing is they play the game. Um, they play the alphabet game, which is something that, that I, I, the, the one Victorian game that I still think people should bring back, which How is the play? I love my love with an A or I love my love with a B. Oh, yeah. How do you it, do you're, it? Well, you're supposed to say, you're supposed to give, you're supposed to give several adjectives then you're supposed to um i'll give an example okay, like, let's like, just, we'll just play it play okay, it let's i say it i love my love with an a mm. because she is angelic mm. um is that true sure <laughs> uh amazing and animated but no wait wait there's okay. more to it then you have to say she lives in america and she eats apples I see. So you have to end with a, the where the person lives and what they eat. I see. So I love my love with a B because he is boisterous, boyish, and big-hearted. <laughs> he lives in Brazil where he eats Brazil nuts? <laughs> I don't know. There you go. Very good. Mm, this could be a fun game, but hard. Yeah. So I. Um, yeah. So you were saying about the party games that you really noticed um, something about them. Oh, I. I just wanted to say that uh, they they tend to break down social convention, and that's um, and that's another thing that I, I think is Christmas does as far as. Uh, Dickens is concerned is it breaks down something of the accepted social order. In fact, at the very beginning, when um, Scrooge's nephew says, this is the one time of the year when people look at each other as fellow passengers to the grave. Mm. And it's the idea that that's the the gift of of this time is the setting aside of of all the things that divide us. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, 
I was really thinking a lot about time, not only this chiastic structure that I'm proposing, but when Scrooge says that he'll live in the past, present, and future, I've never really seen, there might be a movie out there that says, but I don't recall a movie that actually quotes that part. But I think that's important. He, you know, he doesn't just say, I'm going to live in the present or I'm going to learn from this. He says he's going to live in the past, present, and future. And that's a very funny thing to say because you don't actually live in the future or live in the past. Um, and when we say that, usually it's a bad thing. But it made me think of another philosopher, Augustine, who says this about time. He says that the past is basically for us our experience of memories. And the future is essentially our experience of the anticipation of something. And that the present is when our expectations and our the past are kind of woven together. And there's this sort of hard to name, almost intangible, um, present fluid moment that constitutes our present experience. So um, Augustine's example is if you're singing a song, I think for him it's Psalms, but if you're singing a song... You're both retaining what you just sang. You're anticipating what came. And the moment that you're singing in the present is only meaningful because you can kind of hang on to the beginning and the end of the song. The whole song is what matters. Um, And that's what I think Scrooge is saying. He's saying, like, listen, we're all going to (laughs) die. But he, he, he wants to say, like, he's living in anticipation of the fact that in the future there's death or in the future there's loss, like Tiny Tim, you know. Uh, we're assured he's going to live at the end, but there's an ambiguity about that for a while in the book. He le- learns from the past. He can't go back and change so he lost his fiance, but he can learn from it and how he wants to live now. And he really values the present once he's had his conversion moment. So I think that these reflections on time are really ways where he's saying, I'm going to let the past matter instead of shutting it off. You know, even though he feels hurt and tenderized in a way by it, it tenderizes his little heart. And he's going to not avoid the fact that he's going to die someday in the future. But that's going to make his present more meaningful. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful observation. You know that um, the... Uh, Dickens's editor made him put in the line about Tiny Tim not dying. That it originally, it was left ambiguous at the end of the of the book. What was? Uh, yeah, Tiny I saw that in. So we shared reading a Kindle version together because um, I can't find our paper version. And the in the end, uh, the appendix there, it does say that originally the story ended it with the part where he says to Cratchit to put another coal on the fire. I mean, I think it's still, the appendix claims it's not that it was ambiguous, but that he thought it would be clear from the fact that he's giving a raise to Cratchit that Tiny Tim's going to be okay, and he wanted to reassure his worried readers. (laughs) Um, But I think that's a good point. I wanted to say one more thing about the book, which is that I think it has an interesting, but sometimes problematic view of charity and mercy, which is, I found that on the one hand, there's this lovely reflection on charity that comes out of gratitude for what you have and a sense of other people being your brothers. Um, You know, it is a very Christian message, although I think both um, other Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Islam would concur. But this idea that we're all brothers, as you said, that nothing separates us. We're all sisters. We're all people together, um, of whatever gender, that we all love one another is a really important message. 
Um, but I would say the thing that bothered me a little bit is that Dickens in his, uh, I guess, very Dickinsonian way sometimes gets very, he very much turns to a tone of pity that has a degree of condescension in it that I think doesn't, it's for me, is not a Christian way to look at things, is not a healthy way to look at things. Right, right. And that, that kind of bothers me, you know, this kind of pity for people. Well, well sure. Dickens was, um, Dickens was a, a, a founder of realism in that he dealt with the actual working conditions of the masses, you know, writing before this, you think back to Jane Austen dealt it dealt with the gentry, um, and so it was a revolution to talk about poor people. And there was in the Victorian age there was a theory out there that giving charity to people just created more poor people. That's a theory, of course, that persists to this day among some people. And this book was in some ways a response to that. It was a response to this idea that. There was something wrong with the with giving um, charity at the beginning, you know, when Scrooge denies um, the two gentlemen looking for charity any any money. He cites these theories of the time that mm. well, what people need to be done is they need to be forced into labor, and then we will be free from from uh, from poverty. One other thing about this book, well, I, well, can I jump in yeah, here sure. real quick? The thing that what I meant to say about charity though is that. Those are all good points. I think that, um, you know, there's a good kind of charity, which really comes from the Latin idea of caritas, or love for my fellow human being, where we're on the same, or level on the same playing field, that if you're poor or rich, that is not relevant to our status, or respect, or care for the dignity of one another, because we're all human. And the thing I don't really like about the book is the tone is often... Oh, look at those poor people. Look at poor Tiny Tim, who's uh, disabled. Look at poor Cratchit, who's cold. Um, now I, Scrooge, will be the great benefactor who will give something to them. I mean, there is this implicit idea that Scrooge is getting, first of all, they have something he doesn't have, which is love and charity and mercy and benevolence and kindness and gratitude, and that he will receive that, you know, from being in their house. So it is outweighed by those things, but... Um, yeah, at times I just felt like there's a little bit of like feel sorry for someone mm -hmm. instead of the full respect. I mean, it, it's not always like that, but right. at times. Now, this book um, is often credited with creating modern Christmas as we know it, which is because um, Christmas or at least midwinter's festivals, which even predate Christianity in the British Isles, uh, were associated mostly with um, with rural life. You know, it makes sense that if you were a, a farmer, uh, you would want to do something to mark the shortest day of the year and to assure everyone that, yes, the light's coming back eventually. And so things like the Yule log that predate uh, the Christian ad adaptation of that tradition uh, are associated with the countryside. And when the civil war in Britain uh, put the Puritans in place. They outlawed the um, the celebration of Christmas because it was seen as pagan and not appropriate to, to Christianity. And at, in the early part of the 19th century, um, Christmas observations were not being um, 
observed as much in the big city. It was really associated with a simpler time, a rustic place, a and this idea that somehow that didn't didn't fit into the Victorian mindset of a modern society. And so a lot of what Dickens does in this book is he says, yeah, it is about, um, you know, he 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 literally takes uh, Scrooge out of the city and back to the country to 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 reconnect with something that is from the past and to have this um, have this nostalgia in the story that's they're saying and here's where we can fit this into the the urban life you know this is where we can fit it into the the, the modern Victorian lifestyle. And so a lot of people like to say that, you know, that this book was extremely popular and it, it really popularized a lot of aspects of Christmas that were being uh, forgotten at that time. I mean, I want to one thing I want to say on behalf of Catholics as a Roman Catholic <laughs> is that there's always been within um, the Catholic tradition a comfort with throughout, you know, when people tried to Christianize various cultures, allowing parts of festivals or pagan, uh, you know, identities to be connect, reconnected to the Christian narrative. So you could see that as oppressive because they're trying to get rid of the pagans. But on the other hand, they often allow those things to kind of get hooked on to, to tradition. So there was, you know, and Catholicism has not really been that same. Oh, don't have a Yule log because it's pagan. There was often this idea of, um, yeah, you have winter solstice. Well, guess what? We have Christmas, and your winter, winter solstice traditions go along pretty well as paraliturgical things alongside the liturgy of Christmas. So, um, yeah, in fact, my own cultural tradition of Latvia, um, we say Prietsegus Zimasvetkus means, you know, basically winter festival. It doesn't reference Christmas, but it's set at Christmas because mm-hmm. it's drawing those two things together. Sure. Well, in an interesting bit of synchronicity, of course, um, just a few years prior to this book, Queen Victoria uh, assumed the, the the monarchy, and it was her husband Albert who brought from Germany the tradition of Christmas trees, and those became quite the vogue. Well, yeah, I want to interrupt here to say that Latvians say they had the first Christmas tree. And that it, there's evidence that it predates it existing in Germany, that the Germans had it second. And I firmly believe that. There seems to be good evidence that Riga had the very first Christmas tree ever, and then the Germans afterwards. Now, they were uh, under German rule, so I suppose what you could do is say that both were true because of the, um, the fact that Latvia didn't have independence at that time. But there's um, a, a good evidence that Latvians had the first Christmas tree. Well. From Latvia to Germany to to England, uh, I that's a it's a it was a, a, a journey, and it, now it's here in America too. Yeah. The other thing that happened apparently uh, was that the same year this was published was the first recorded example of a Christmas card being printed. Mm, that's interesting. So. Well, well, um, I just want to say to everybody, Happy Christmas, Prietsegus Ziemasvetkus. <laughs> and Happy New Year, and whatever you celebrate, and whoever you are, thanks for listening. Yeah, live in the past, the present, and the future, because Scrooge did it. <laughs>